Hello and welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. I'm your host, Ming Canaday. Trips and Global on Wheels is focused on sharing resources and insights into disability advocacy, fitness and health, and accessible travel. Our mission is to build a community of healthy, worldly, and informed advocates. Each week on our podcast, we interview someone with a disability or someone whose work advances the disability rights movement, both locally and internationally. This week, I spoke with the world-famous disability rights activist, Judy Human. Judy has done some amazing work for the disability community, both domestically and internationally, in the private sector and in the public sector, at the grassroots level and at the governmental level. She has always been a champion for individuals with disabilities. And now, let's listen in on that conversation with Judy Human. Hello, Judy Human. Thank you so much for coming on Traipsing Global on Wheels to participate in our podcast series. We are so very happy to have you join us here. So just for listeners who aren't as familiar, Judy Human is a lifelong advocate for the rights of disabled people. She contracted polio in 1949 in Brooklyn, New York, and began to experience discrimination at five years old when she was denied the right to attend school because she was a quote-unquote fire hazard. Her parents played a strong role in fighting for her rights as a child. Judy determined that she, working in collaboration with other disabled people, had to play an increasing advocacy role as she and others experienced continuous discrimination because of their disabilities. She is now an internationally recognized leader in the disability rights community and a lifelong civil rights advocate. President Obama appointed Judy as the first special advisor for international disability rights at the U.S. Department of State, where she served from 2010 to 2017. From June 2002 to 2006, Judy also served as the World Bank's first advisor on disability and development. In this position, she led the World Bank's disability work to expand the bank's knowledge and capability to work with governments and civil society on including disability in the global conversation. And then from 1993 to 2001, Judy served in the Clinton administration as the Assistant Secretary for the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitative Services in the Department of Education. Today, Judy is a senior fellow at the Ford Foundation. She is currently working to help advance the inclusion of disability in the foundation's work and is leading a project to advance the inclusion of disabled people in the media. Wow, that is a lot of great work there, Judy. So I'm, I'm 70 and a half years old. That's how I could do all this. So to kickstart our podcast, why are you proud to be a wheelchair user, a polio survivor, a person with a disability? I'm proud of being all of those and being a part of a growing disability rights movement, both domestically and internationally. And I think that's because, as you mentioned, started experiencing discrimination at a very, very young age, as have disabled people of my generation, previous generations, and your generation. The need to be able to have 
a robust community of disabled activists who look at discrimination as something which is not acceptable and have been working for decades on becoming a part of the civil rights and human rights community is something that's both important. I think all of us who have been playing a role in this regard, including yourself, feel proud about our accomplishments. That being said, we know that we have much, much more to do. And so I think our work is really done with humility because while achieving something is important, we're not anywhere near where we need to be. Maybe further ahead in our country than many others, but even in that regard, protections that we've had in the past are being threatened at this current time. Just to follow up with that, if it were up to you in an ideal world, where would we be? I'd like us as a society, not just with disabled people, but in general, to be one which respects the rights of all people from diverse backgrounds, including those with disabilities from diverse backgrounds. Right now, I'm really concerned about how during this 2018 election, the demagoguery that's going on, the terrible things that are being said against minorities, all of those things are really divisive in my mind and are not aimed at bringing the United States together as a people. Many of the people that are addressing these issues of division are privileged people who really don't understand what discrimination means and how hatred, maligning other people in our communities, selecting out certain groups of people depending on the day as people who are dangerous, I think really undermines the concept of the United States and a democracy. So I think we're really at a very dangerous place right now. The work that we're doing as a disability rights movement, working collectively with other civil rights movements across the board, is really important because discrimination against any one person is discrimination against everyone. So ideally, where I would like us to be is looking at all people as equal, regardless of where people come from, their language, their religion, sexual orientation, color of their skin, etc. Also, I think in the area of disability, we really need to be able to have a much more empowered community. People who have disabilities themselves need to feel respected, need to have respect for themselves, where the, the environment of our communities, regardless of your disability, were accessible and that people were not afraid of discussing whether they had an invisible disability or a visible disability, what repercussions could be in their family, in their communities, in their employment. So I know you have been very active for a very long time. Being discriminated at age five, you kind of have to be. But you're very active, especially in college, with organizing rallies and protests to advance disability issues. What were your initial agendas, motivations? In college, I was a little bit of a leader on college campus. I was a member of the student council, and so I was involved with a tuition strike, some anti-war activities, but I started really getting involved more in a 
leadership role in the area of demonstrations when President Nixon vetoed the Rehabilitation Act. A group of friends of mine and I had set up an organization in 1970 in New York City, which came about as a result of the lawsuit that I had filed when I applied to be a teacher and was denied my license because I couldn't walk. So we set up this group called Disabled in Action, which was a pretty cross-disability organization for that time period. We were working on many different issues. And in 1973, the Rehabilitation Act was passed in the House and Senate and had something called Title V. In Title V is included Section 504, which I think many of your audience will know. 504 was the first major piece of legislation that made it illegal to discriminate against someone with a disability, regardless of their disability, if in fact the entity was getting money from the federal government. But when this was vetoed by President Nixon, Disabled in Action and an organization at that time called Pride and some other people got together and we organized a demonstration in Manhattan. And then it was this was four days before the election. And then we had another demonstration one day before the election where we brought in disabled veterans from the Vietnam War who participated in the demonstration. So that's a lot of great organizations coming together and mobilizing. So what was going on in the early 1970s was that disabled people were beginning to copy some of the approaches that other rights-based movements had been using for numbers of decades. But as a rule, the disability community had not been involved in demonstrations like that since the 1930s, but I think in the in the 70s and 80s and 90s, Centers for Independent Living, ADAPT, and other groups began to really look at a more holistic approach of what needed to be done to really advocate, how to create an agenda, what were the issues we were fighting against, how were we going to advance them, how do we use the media, how do we organize disabled people? How do we work with the government and fight against the government? And I think that type of work really uh, led to the formation of a group, which also is no longer around, called the American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities, which was the national organization that led the activities that resulted in the 504 demonstrations around the United States which ultimately brought about the signature of Secretary Califano to the 504 regulations out of, at that time, the Health, Education, and Welfare Agency. So after graduation, you were denied the New York teaching license, but you took the case to court and won and became the first person in a wheelchair to teach in New York City. Yeah, so that case, just for those people who may get go look at the case, it was settled out of court. I had a lawyer named Roy Lucas, and the judge was a woman named Constance Baker Motley. She was a civil rights leader and was elected state assembly and then was appointed as the first African-American woman to a federal bench. She was our judge, 
and she basically told the Board of Education when we were in court that she strongly encouraged them to give me another medical exam, which they did. And so we brought the case, they settled out of court, I was given my license, and then took a number of months to be able to get a job because most of the schools were not accessible and the same barriers that existed that had resulted in my denial of a job, many principals didn't want to hire me. But I eventually was hired in, with a regular educational license to teach in special ed classes in the same elementary school that I had gone to in the 1950s. And you taught there for three years? Yes, I taught one year special ed, two years uh, non-disabled kids. Um, so you seem to be very well-versed in advocating both for yourself and for others. What is the key to effective self-advocacy? I think the key for people being able to do good self-advocacy is not necessarily just doing it by yourself. I think it's important for many people that they have other disabled people and friends who may not have disabilities who understand the types of discrimination that they're experiencing and can help people both problem solve, what are solutions, as well as encourage people to keep moving forward. That discrimination is not something we should suck up and just allow it to adversely affect ourselves. But the other thing I think is very important is where there are acts of discrimination that affect larger groups than just yourself, which certainly is the, is the case in education, healthcare, transportation, then in my view, working with other people, both on looking for solutions and supporting solutions and supporting people where it's necessary to file a complaint, to look at the possibility of going to court, to help allow people not to be alone. If you look at work that ADAPT continues to do today on issues in personal assistance services and in healthcare and how many of the centers for independent living are involved with those activities, I think these activities are really helping people to be empowered, to have a message that people can understand and to fight for legislation and implementation of existing legislation to help advance the inclusion and non-discrimination and human rights for disabled people. And also, I feel like working together keeps everyone more informed as well, as there are different angles and approaches to the various issues. We're learning together, and I think that's an excellent point. That's something that's not just disability-specific, but... Gaining support and knowledge and encouragement enables people to continue to move forward to fight the battles. A similar question. Before working on the international disability rights, you were an early leader in the independent living movement in the U.S. You co-founded the Berkeley Center for Independent Living, where you were deputy director and later a board member. 
During your tenure, you played an instrumental role in securing one of the first federal civil rights laws protecting people with disabilities, staging one of the longest sit-ins ever at a federal building for 28 days with over 150 people at the San Francisco office of the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. What is the key to effective mobilization and what are some effective ways disability rights leaders can mobilize other individuals with disabilities to advocate for crucial services that are key to leading a a life with dignity and independence? I'll talk about work that we did with the 504 demonstration in the 1970s, and it's very similar to work that people are doing today. In the case of the 504 regulation that hadn't been signed, what enabled us to move forward was we organized with a group of disabled people working collaboratively with national organization, the American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities. I was on the board of ACCB and defining what the problem was, laying out a plan of action, and then keeping up to everything that we said we were going to do. So in the case of the 504 regulations, ACCB had said, we've been working with the administrations, the Nixon Ford administration, then in the beginning with the Carter administration, to get these regulations developed for Section 504. We do not want a period of time where you're claiming government that you're going to be doing a review, but when in reality we have heard that in point of fact you're looking at way more than just reviewing what exists, but you're looking at how to make things weaker. And so we had to think ahead. We had to look at what options we had available to ensure that these regulations that were being developed would in fact be signed. We were working on these regulations for many years. When Carter was elected, the disability community had supported his campaign, and we had been told that they were going to sign the regulations as they were. And when that wasn't happening, we became very alarmed. We became alarmed because Title V, as I mentioned, and Section 504 were not pieces or provisions of legislation that the general public knew a lot about. As universities, hospitals, elementary school systems, transport systems were learning about what their obligations would be, they were beginning to put pressure on Secretary Califano to do a review process and weekend. And again, looking at what other communities had done in the past, we did the same thing. We educated people around the country. We allowed people to know why regulations were important, why they should be involved in a campaign. And when that wasn't working, then we escalated this up to the demonstration that you mentioned, which took place of 28 days. Most of the hubs where there were demonstrations finished their demonstrations in a day or two. But in the Bay Area, I think in part because we had the longest CILs and the communities, the non-disabled communities 
were really supporting what we were doing. So we were doing media, we, 150 people came into a federal building. It's the longest demonstration that's ever happened. We were vigilant, we were committed, we were not gonna move. And I think at the end of the day, it was the Bay Area demonstration that really enabled the regulations to be signed because we were getting a lot of press. There was work going on in Washington, D.C. from the leadership of ACCB. Um, there were people who had come to Washington, including myself and a number of people from the Bay Area. But at the end of the day, I really think the demonstrations in San Francisco are what ultimately got them to sign the regulations. If you look at today on the threats against the ACA or what some call Obamacare, immigration legislation, etc., what you see is disabled and non-disabled people being very out there, being clear on what it is that people want, not that the laws or regulations are at this point being developed as we'd like them to be, but there is definitely a very strong group of people, including disabled people, that have been able to ward off the administration's position of weakening, for example, healthcare legislation. I mean, I think demonstrations well organized are similar. Today it's a little different because we have social media. So social media, I think, really has added a tremendous benefit to demonstrations because you can get messages out so quickly, you can get people involved more quickly than you could in the past. But I think the strategies are very similar. With the social media, sometimes some worry about how thought through the plans are. So for decades, you've worked to help establish numerous DPOs. We've mentioned some, including Disabled in Action in New York City, the first center for independent living in Berkeley, California, and the World Institute on Disability in Oakland, California. What advice do you have for individuals with disabilities today who are trying to start similar groups or establish start startups that highlight and celebrate disability? What resources would you have liked to have seen made available when you were starting these organizations? I would say look around to see if there are any organizations where you're living or looking at national work that are doing work similar to what you want to do. And if you believe in the people that are doing that work. Creating multiple, multiple organizations is not necessarily the best way to move forward. So look deliberatively, carefully at what you want to do and do you need a new group to do it? If you need a new group to do it, then I think it's really important first to really decide what is the purpose of the organization that I want to set up. And I think you need to start looking early on at, is this a unique purpose? What funding sources are out there in order to do the work we want to do? With Disabled in Action, when we set it up and still today, it really hasn't had a budget, basically dues and a few other things. Because it wasn't set up to be an organization that was staffed. It was always advocacy and pretty volunteer. But now there are other organizations like the Centers for Independent Living, various deaf groups and blind groups and organizations of people with psychosocial disabilities, intellectual disabilities, etc. Work together. Try not to set up organizations that are focusing on a single disability, but rather really looking at how to be able to work collaboratively 
with others. Learn about how to set up a nonprofit organization. Go and speak to other organizations in your communities or nationally or regionally, whatever it is you're looking to do. Get a better understanding of how do you set up an organization? What is a board of directors? How do you write your bylaws? How do you incorporate? The areas that you're looking at, are there donors that would give money in that area? Do you want to have a stamp? How are you going to pay them? What are the various options out there for fundraising? Those are all, I think, very important. And again, as a rule, not doing it by yourself. You're setting up an organization. It's important that many people can benefit from it, whether it's a business and you're selling something or you're a nonprofit organization and you're working on policy, advocacy, services, whatever it may be. It's not easy. It can be done. Look ahead at what it is you're going to be required to do and make decisions early. And definitely talk to others who've had more experience than you have, maybe not in the subject matter, but in creation of organizations or looking at ways of collaborating. And what specific decisions are you thinking of when you say make decisions early? If you can start planning sooner than later, you can start asking questions that need to be answered to determine whether you want to move forward. Plenty of people start something and then get discouraged because they can't get done what they want to do or because there are other people out there doing similar things and donors may not wish to fund you. There are other ways of doing fundraising, crowdsourcing and things of that nature can be another source of funding. Believe in what you want to do. And if there's another group out there or other groups out there doing similar work, look at the possibility of working with them. If for whatever reason you don't choose to do that, then just make sure you've got a clear plan that you're looking for people who can be on your board of directors who can supplement your knowledge and help you both put the organization together and then operate it from a management perspective, help you as you move forward. So the next series of questions are related to organizations that you've worked with both domestically and internationally. How does collaborating effectively with government organizations differ from non-governmental organizations? What is the key to working effectively with them to advance disability rights issues? I think the, the value of working with DPOs and NGOs is that you can get a larger group of people supporting issues that you and others want to advance. If it's the inclusion of disabled girls and women in organizations doing women's work, but where they haven't included disabled girls and women. Getting NGOs and DPOs together who believe that and can then work with the organizations that are working to advance the rights of women and be able to push them to be inclusive of disabled girls and women in their agenda, I think that's very important. I think if you look at the Me Too movement, it's important because Issues affecting disabled girls and women can also be a part of the broader agenda of what the Me Too movement is working on. When we're working intersectionally, it is very valuable that people understand the types of barriers disabled people are facing so they can be more included in the broader agenda. It helps us become more included. 
it also, I think, helps others to see the breadth of disability, these other groups that don't see themselves as disability rights organizations. They get a clearer understanding of, oh, yes, there are disabled people who are on our staff if we have them, or who are volunteers uh, working in the organization. It's an opportunity to share information and learn from each other. So you've been involved on the international front, working with disabled people's organizations and governments around the world to advance the human rights of disabled people for a number of decades. What is the key to collaborating and working with such a wide network and such a diverse group of people? This gets back to some of the beginning points we were discussing, and that is we need a well-organized disability community. In order to be able to have consistent engagement with government agencies or with nonprofit organizations, we need to have disabled people and organizations that have a clear idea of what the barriers are, what the solutions are. We need people who are resilient, in spite of the fact that the uh, UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities now has 173 countries that have ratified it. Many of these governments really do not understand the depth of the discrimination and what they as governments need to do and how they need to be holding their government agencies and civil society responsible for learning about what discrimination is and ending those practices across the board. Resilience because this is not easy. The United States is still absolutely not where we need to be. Progress, yes. Threatened, yes. In Europe, in Latin America, in Asia, in Africa, we see progress being made, but in many cases still much too limited. There are still millions of disabled children who are not in school, people who are not being able to work in the formal employment sector and are working in the informal employment sector where they're not getting benefits. We see this in higher education, in communications, where disabled people are not appropriately being served or included. So working cross-disability, working with non-disabled people's organizations that are fighting issues around poverty, housing, sexual orientation, sexual violence, immigration, migrants. We need to be able to work not in isolation. In some cases, it's really getting disabled people to be hired within some of these organizations so that they can be working on the inclusion of disability. The Ford Foundation, which is a foundation that I've had the privilege of working with, is really committed as a result of President Darren Walker to the inclusion of disability across the work of the Ford Foundation. But he also has rightly recognized that the inclusion of disability in the Ford Foundation is something that he he wants to get other foundations to also be taking seriously. What are foundations doing now to be inclusive of disability and what more can they be doing? All those issues are really important to help elevate the issue. Because in the United States, we're saying one in four people have a disability. The World Health Report 
that came out in 2011 says that 15% of the world's population has disabilities. It's very important that the number is growing, and as a result of that, hopefully there's more attention being paid to the issues. The Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and the committee that has oversight responsibility at the international level, the committee is very important. Whereas the committee can't make a country make changes, the committee can hold a light up to good practices and bad practices. I think all of that's very important. Definitely with Zillions, I resonate with you on that. When I was in China, it was really difficult to find an apartment that was wheelchair accessible. And then even getting an internship was quite the, quite the experience. So my next question is, what are your views on how the different disability rights coalitions collaborate together in the U.S.? If relevant, what can be improved in terms of cohesiveness and establishing a unified agenda? It is too bad that there is no longer an organization like ACCD. The American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities was working on some of those issues. We need to be able to look at a way to come together more. Now you've got groups like the National Council on Independent Living, the Consortium for Citizens with Disabilities, which is not a disabled run organization, but the vast majority of representation in Washington, D.C. from all these different disability groups are more service and policy providers. They're not run by and large by disabled people. So I think that's very important. On the international level, the organization, the United States International Council on Disability, I think is a very important organization because USID can be the umbrella that brings organizations together that are interested in international engagement and not only get these organizations to be speaking to their communities and with their legislators to let them understand what conditions are like for disabled people and opportunities to learn from the work that's being done. Use it, I think, is really important when it comes to uh, looking at advancing disability inclusively in USAID and State Department and foundations that are doing international development work. So I think we need places that people can go to that are creating agendas to move the needle forward. Always be vigilant. If something's happening and doesn't feel right, it isn't right. We're looking, I think, at another five to ten years as we strengthen both our domestic organizations, but equally important, our organizations that are doing international work. Speaking of addressing disability issues internationally, what progress have you seen in developing in third world countries in terms of disability rights and able-bodied people seeing individuals with disabilities as equal partners in society? What specific progress has been made? There's a lot of specific progress that's being made depending on the country. Uh, For those people that are really interested in learning more about that, There's an organization called the International Disability Alliance. They're an organization made up of 
13 international organizations made up of disabled people and one parent organization. Then they also have quite a number of regional organizations that are members. Ida has very much been leading the efforts, not just with the UN, but with other entities like UNICEF, but also working with bilateral and multilateral organizations. So multilateral organizations like the World Bank, working with USAID and state, working with foreign ministries in countries around the world. Ida is very involved with that. And then as local organizations are being formed in countries in Africa, and Africa now has a national umbrella organization of disabled people's organizations, the members within the individual countries and the members of the national association are coming together, looking at policy areas that they want to be changing. They're working at the local level, helping to organize disabled people, working with government, putting forward policies, working on implementation. We've seen a fair amount of work being done since 1980 and advancing the development of local disability rights organizations. At the end of the day, though, we have so much more to go. When you compare us to other rights-based movements, we are very far behind. So I appreciate the work that you are doing, Ming, because you have a very unique background yourself, and I think you're developing you know, a program where people both domestically and internationally can share information, learn more, and really, I think, get excited and engaged because you also set a very good model of what and how people should be doing things to advance the rights of disabled people. Thank you. Yeah, I find what you just said very fascinating when you said we're very behind compared to other uh, rights organizations. Why do you think that is? Why is there such a lag? The development of a strong, robust disability rights movement within the U.S. is really still hampered by limited funds. Uh, we have a lot of organizations. Yes, maybe we need to create some more, but we need to support the good ones that are there. The voices of disabled people are still too quiet in the U.S. We need to be much more vocal when discrimination is happening. We need not to accept it. We need to recognize that telling our stories is really important. People in the general society really need to understand the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it needs to be told by disabled people, friends, and allies. And I'm hoping, you know, our movement will continue to grow. And also that our movement will be working more with the Latino communities, African-American, civil rights communities overall, the business communities and others, so that people really understand the diversity both of disability and us as people. We're different like everybody else, but we need to be able to express those differences. And in many cases, the way to do that is by removing barriers that have precluded us from participating equally. Every individual should feel dignity and pride in who they are, should be able to have the opportunity to work with others in the community to advance these rights. And I think, I don't know when this show is going to air, but it doesn't matter. November 6th is the next big election in the United States. There are big elections every two years. Disabled people not only need to be registered to vote, we need to vote. We need to let people know how we're voting. 
why we're voting. Politicians will support us and look to helping advance our rights if they believe that we vote in the local elections for school board, for judge, for city council, for county board, for state positions and federal positions, we need to no longer be silent. Since the passage of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, how has access to education improved for disabled people around the world? I think slowly. The treaty came in force in 2008. For those countries that were not doing much on inclusive education, they've ratified it sometime between 2008 and now. And so if they were doing very little, you're going to see very little change thus far. But, you know, for example, there's a meeting going on right now in Kenya with a number of multilateral and UN organizations exclusively focusing on issues around education of disabled children and inclusive education. That is an important meeting. It will help civil society, parent groups, disability groups within Kenya, as well as the government itself. We passed the Education for All Handicapped Children's Act in 1975, and we are now in 2018. What are some of the major differences? In 2005, there were 1 million disabled children not attending school at all. Today, it's not like that. But when we look at inclusion of disabled kids in regular classes and regular schools, we still have not made the advancements we need to make. While we have better data on disabled children graduating from high school, moving into universities, we still don't see the same numbers of disabled students attending universities and graduating and getting jobs. So this is where we have a law in place for 40 or more years. Groups like the International Disability Alliance are really important. Again, when we look at education, one of the issues is parents. Parents being able to advocate for their children in many cases where there are no laws that children have the right to an education. Helping parents to organize through groups like Inclusion International, there are a lot of positive things happening, but a lot more that needs to happen. So progress all too slow, at least moving forward incrementally. So in regards to foreign aid, how has your work over the years improved ensuring disability inclusiveness in foreign aid? I think I've played a small role in helping to advance that. Groups like the United States International Council on Disability and Mobility International USA, Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, a number of those organizations, I think, have also been helpful in this area. But I can say that when I worked at the Department of State in the Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor Office, we were successful on getting disability integrated into many of the grants that they announced and were awarding. But at the end of the day, some progress is being made, not anywhere near enough, and it has to be the voices of disabled people in the United States, in countries around the world where their governments are giving aid. The United States government gives aid to various entities to advance transportation, to advance education, to advance employment, but in all too many cases, 
disability is really not meaningfully integrated into those efforts. So if disabled people in the United States are interested in international work, an organization they could join would be the United States International Council on Disability. Because again, groups like USID having large memberships can also impact the House and Senate side when budgets are being put forward by the administrations and can work with uh, senators and congressional people to help them understand what some of the major barriers are that disabled people are facing overseas. So for example, what are we doing to ensure when U.S. money is being used to build a road in another country, what are we doing to ensure that the road has curb cuts, that people can use it? If we're giving money for countries to buy buses, are we requiring that they buy accessible buses? When teacher training is being done with our money, what are we doing to make sure that teachers are being trained to work with students who have disabilities in an inclusive setting? So looking into the future, what do you see as the biggest challenges facing individuals with disabilities as a whole? And how can we overcome these challenges as a group? I don't think there's one issue. As I've been discussing, it's multiple issues. It's all politics is local. I think disabled people being able to reach out to other disabled people in their local communities and discussing what successes and barriers exist. Looking at um, working with groups, creating new groups, whatever makes most sense, working with local governments to basically bring our needs and issues forward to people who can make a difference. For people who have disabilities and have not yet identified, encouraging them to be able to do that. Our media also needs to be much more representative of disability. We need to be seeing disabled people just as a part of whatever is going on in movies and television. Can you emphasize why it's so important to identify? Because I think when people don't see themselves in media, then I think that really reinforces stigma and marginalization. The Me Too movement and other work that's been going on by women within media is really advancing not only the voices of women, but also I think it's empowering women to be able to hear a message. But the absence of disabled girls and women in those messages, I think is a problem because we don't see ourselves. You know, we see lots of other groups being represented, black people, Asian people, Latino people, sexual orientation issues on and on, but disability is still so marginalized. Our marginalization also is a reflection on the fact that as a community, we are not demanding that media include us, not just on screen, behind the screen, in front of the screen, you know, in the newspapers, in radios, in, in where we gather our information. Our absence results in our continuing to feel minimized and not really seen as equal members of our society. When you look at organizations like GLAD and Center on Asian Americans in Media, these organizations really have been playing an influential role with other organizations to 
report on misrepresentation, underrepresentation of people from those communities. They've been involved in training people to be able to advance um, in their fields. As we are expanding, because our movement is so different than it was 50 years ago, we still need to recognize that in the United States, for example, 62 million disabled people, I don't know how many million people are really engaged, but not millions. We have to help people feel like they have a right to be able to have barriers removed. They have a right to participate in the discussion and they have a right to influence government and other civil society groups. I think the religious community also, for those people who are actively involved, making sure that religious organizations and other organizations are really speaking up when looking at social justice issues and being inclusive of disability. We need to be looking at things like the juvenile justice population, where 60% of the people in those facilities and adult facilities are people who have disabilities. And why are they in these facilities? What were they not getting previously to enable them to not wind up in prison? And what about the rates of disabled and non-disabled people committing the same crimes where disabled people are getting longer sentences? You know, it just goes on and on and on. You know, an important issue that has really started in the 1970s is that we have to move away from generalizations to being able to be more specific. We need people who have more specific knowledge and experience in education, in the criminal justice system, in transportation, in IT, you know, whatever it may be. We need to have people who are equally knowledgeable, can be joining uh, organizations that are doing uh, work in advancing these areas. When our voices are represented, when we're really understanding the issues of discrimination, we can really help influence what goes on, both in the public and private sector. We need to model what other minority groups have done. We need to take the onion apart. We need to look at what has enabled people to move forward and what opportunities do we not have and how do we begin to demand that we get those opportunities. Because, you know, the world of work is changing very dramatically, I think, over the next 10 to 20 years. And we need to make sure that disabled people are not going to be further excluded from the world of work because what's going on around us is changing. And we're in the past and not the present thinking forward. The work that you're doing, Ming, and people in their 20s, 30s, 40s are really important. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk with you is because I think you really um, model the importance of a person who's benefited from many laws in the United States. You bring a lot of unique characteristics, your background from China coming to the U.S., and then your worldly vision and how, you know, what you are aiming to do is really put yourself and bring others in on making important changes. So being able to identify people like you in the United States and around the world that want to be doing the same things, advancing their rights and the rights of other people, we need to be able to get a megaphone to make that happen. And I think one easy way, as you uh, alluded to earlier and emphasizing earlier, is voting. You know, it's it, sure it will be challenging to be included in media, but voting is a very easy way to maximize the few voices that are out there elections in a state from local on up, most of the groups as nonprofits are not going to come out endorsing one person or another. 
but you can develop a set of questions. You can ask all the people running those questions. You can, you can publish the answers of the people who have answered and allow people to see who did not respond. I was talking to someone the other day from a state where they had sent a set of questions to two gubernatorial candidates, Democrat and Republican, and neither of them responded. And they sent out a newsletter that went out to 32,000 people. The Democrat contacted them and said they were really sorry they hadn't responded. Could they respond? And they were not able to get the Republican to respond. So they did put out the information about what the Democrat did and that the Republican hadn't responded. So that may or may not have an effect on the election this year. But those types of things being done on a regular basis is really important. They will be noticed. And just like one candidate's office called and said, we're sorry, we'd like to do it. You know, that's from 100% nothing to 50% something is good. The answers may not all be the right answers, the answers that we want, but it also allows us to enter into a dialogue with the candidate about what issues of concern we have with their positions and what we support. People have to recognize that they have an important role to play and also that people need to be responsible with other people in the communities. It's ideal that people are not just out there by themselves speaking about what is beneficial for them, but able to really look at the needs of a community more broadly. I think in closing, I want to emphasize how I really admire your passion and your energy, even after all these decades. Yes, a lot of progress has been made, but it's been very, very slow. What is What keeps you going? What What is your life motto? It's my responsibility to continue to work with other people to end discrimination and to help people gain their voices. I mean, I think that's really what it's all about is individual people and their families and friends feeling like they have rights and that having a disability does not take away your rights. Having a disability, being a woman, being a Muslim, being a Jew, being Christian, being Buddhist, being Asian, none of those things should be reasons that you do not have opportunities to take your rightful place in society. I get bored really easily. I love working with people and speaking with people. It empowers me. It makes getting up worthwhile. I think we're about wrapping up here. Are there any last words of wisdom you would like to bestow upon our listeners? You know, whoever is listening, look at what you do every day in your life to not only improve your life, but improve the lives of people around you and what more you can do. Thank you so much, Judy, for joining us today. I only know what it's like in America And shutting doors, I don't think that's right Thanks for listening to another Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Special thanks to our guest, Judy Human, for being extremely generous with her time today and for her amazing work in the disability rights movement, both domestically and internationally. Special thank you also to my cousin, Rachel Kennedy, for editing this episode of our podcast. Look for us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, 
and Facebook, where I post pictures of my travels, share videos of my fitness journey, and keep you updated on the latest wheelchair accessory must-haves. Tell others about our program. The more we can raise awareness about these issues, the stronger we can get as a community. At Trips and Global on Wheels, we aim to build a community of healthy, worldly, and informed individuals with disabilities and disability advocates. That means we want to hear from you, our listeners. Send us an email at tgowpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know about your favorite destinations for accessible travel. How do you stay fit to avoid chronic injuries? What language do you prefer to describe your identity as someone with a disability? We want to provide a platform for people to share and learn from each other. So send us your stories. If you have suggestions for future guests that you would like to hear on our podcast series, please leave them in the Contact Us section of our website. Or post them on our Facebook page. Thanks again for listening. Bye bye. And this is our America. And shit like this is getting old.